the Making Sense of Life podcast, episode 17. According to J.K. Rowling, life is difficult and complicated and beyond anyone's total control. The humility to know that will enable you to survive its vicissitudes. The Making Sense of Life podcast will not only empower you to navigate through a fast-changing world, but also to grow in body, mind and spirit. Inward change precedes outer transformation. As the ancient Greek author Plutarch once said, what we achieve inwardly will change outer reality. This podcast is sponsored by Logos Medical Legal. Sunil also works privately with senior leaders. Go to drsunil.com forward slash corporate to find out more. Hello and welcome to the Making Sense of Life podcast with me, Sunil Raheja. Thank you for joining us as we think through an important and challenging issue in our increasingly complex and at times confusing world. It's a great honour and privilege to have you join us uh, on this programme. Today's conversation is going to be, and I know I say this about a lot of our programmes, but this conversation is going to be truly extraordinary. It's going to be a kind of conversation we don't normally have. We've got a special guest, John Wyatt. Hi there, John. Hi, it's good to be here. And it's great to have you. For those of you who don't know, John is a professor of neonatal paediatrics at University College London and a senior research fellow at the Faraday Institute in Cambridge. His background is caring for sick and premature infants and as a researcher into the prevention of brain injury in newborn babies. He's currently leading a research project funded by the Templeton World Charity Foundation into the philosophical, religious and social implications of advances in artificial intelligence and robotics technology. And in his spare time, he's married to uh, Celia and they've got three grown-up sons. So it's great to have you here with, with us, John. So you've written a book, John, called, and I've got it here in my hand, Right to Die, with a question mark, Euthanasia, Assisted Suicide and End-of-Life Care. Now, death may well be the last taboo subject in, in our Western culture. Uh, as I was thinking about uh, our conversation, John, I was thinking of a quote from Woody Allen. Uh, Woody Allen said, I'm not afraid of dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. And uh, yes, these are heavy subjects and, I'm, I, and this topic's not going to be heavy in that, hopefully heavy in a sort of glum way. I think there's lots of great wisdom and truth we're, we're going to learn about. But John, I want to ask you, why you, who's a baby doctor, why did you, what made you want to write a book like this? Yeah, well, it does seem a bit strange, doesn't it? But um, my background, I was as, as a baby doctor uh, working in a big intensive care unit in central London. And I realised that there were all kinds of ethical challenges and dilemmas that I was being confronted with uh, to do with life and death, to do with should we try and resuscitate every tiny little baby? Um, should we? Is it ever right to switch off life support machinery? And um, as we, le- my research was learning more about brain damage and how did that change our understanding of of what we should do so although I started off really very much as a hands-on doctor I got more and more interested and involved in the whole area of medical ethics and um, I saw that as technology advanced it led to more and more 
challenges and questions and problems. And so that's basically been the way I've gone. I'm no longer working as a baby doctor and I'm really focusing on medical ethics. And I increasingly realised it was not just issues at the beginning of life, uh, it was also issues at the end of life. And, and I've been increasingly involved, therefore, in discussions and debates about issues like suicide and mercy killing and medical decisions about the end of life. Yes. And obviously death is that subject that we obviously don't like to think about very much. Well, it's interesting how it is like the final taboo. You know, we can talk about many things. We can talk about sex and relationships and we can talk about even child abuse and dementia and so on. But when it comes to dying and how we would like to die and what what is what it means to die well... These are topics which we don't want to talk about. And yes. And the truth is, obviously, you know, the last I heard, uh, it's, the mortality rate is 100%. Everybody eventually dies. We are all going to die. Yes, my, my medical definition of life is that it's a sexually transmitted degenerative <laughs> condition with 100% mortality. Okay. That's right. And before that, we're all going to get frail and get old. You well, know, many of us are, not only. Well, not, sorry, yeah, not yeah. all of us, but a lot of us are, are, are destined to do that, aren't we? Um, I, I think of a quote from um, Steve Jobs, the great uh, Apple um, founder. Two years before he died, he said, Remembering I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. Now, I was going to say, well, there's a depressing thought. But no, actually, what he's saying is actually knowing that I'm going to die helps to bring clarity about how I should live now. And in this interview, we're going to talk later on about what does it mean to live well, not just to die well, but to live life in all its fullness as well. But it does raise that question as well when we think about having a fulfilled life, having a life with with all with as much opportunities and possibilities as possible. Some people's lives are so painful, they're so full of suffering. You question, is it really worth going on for them? They have terrible injuries, terrible illnesses. Tell us about that, John. Yeah. Well, it's, it's quite right. And I think one of the things I've learned is that Medical ethics isn't just some kind of interesting philosophical debate. It's ultimately about human pain. Mm. Really, every dilemma of medical ethics starts with human pain. It starts with people who struggle and bleed and agonize and worry and suffer and, and die. And... It's really important, I think, that we recognise that right from the beginning, that it's not just a sort of interesting uh, debate about ideas. And I sometimes say that we shouldn't talk and discuss about these issues w with judgment and rhetoric in our voices. Because there is a lot of judgment and rhetoric out there as well. Well, there is, and it's often it's a sort of just... Uh, a lot of confrontation, arguments and, and and lobbing grenades at one another, which isn't helpful. I think we should talk about these issues with tears in our eyes, mm. first of all, and recognise, as you say, there are people whose lives are a real struggle. And, and in fact, in some sense, all of us, you know, all of us go through periods of pain, of suffering. Uh, it may be physical pain, it may be psychological, internal pain but but these are experiences which which many of us have had and or we or we know friends and families as, as, yes, yeah, as well uh, and i myself have had these experiences of i went through a severe 
period of depression. And, and uh, so I discover for myself uh, this internal pain and suffering. And, uh, and so, yes, these are important issues, but it, it forces us to ask this question, what does it mean to, what is life for? When is, what is the value of life? Yes, and that's the key question, isn't it? Is, is how valuable is, is a human life, especially a life that can't reach its full potential? I mean, I, I work with, uh, as a psychiatrist, with people with learning disabilities, with mental retardation, or, and some of them are very severely and very profoundly disabled. How valuable is their life? Well, this is a very big debate in medical ethics, and there certainly are many people arguing that all lives can be valued. Um, and at the top, you've got people like Nobel Prize winners and Olympic athletes. And and then you've got ordinary Joes like you and me somewhere <laughs> in the middle. And then you go down to people with learning difficulties and people with dementia and, and so on. And eventually you get to such a low level that... Um, the question is, is that life worth living at all? Or even some people would argue there are there is such a thing as people's lives are so bad that you do them a favour if you people kill them. People yeah. are suffering, people have got locked-in syndrome or some yeah. major neurological condition. And some people would say it's like having a negative quality of life. And actually, if you've got a negative quality of life, the most loving thing you can do is kill somebody. Yeah. And that's been in the media, in the press, hasn't it? People who can't you know, use any of their limbs, who can't do anything, can't, I don't know, um, touch their face, can't... Absolutely, yeah. But it, the interesting thing is that it isn't that simple. And that if, I mean, we know, if you just think about it, we know that there are many people whose bodies and minds seem to be perfectly healthy and yet who have all kinds of internal problems and dissatisfactions and feelings of distress and uh, unease about themselves whereas there are other people whose bodies may be quite uh, disabled and, and limited who seem filled with much more joy and satisfaction and so there's uh, so there's the correlation is is is, is not necessarily direct it doesn't it? it doesn't work at all actually and as a, a part of my job as a pediatrician is that i've cared for many families caring for disabled children um and it just isn't true that the families with that have disabled children have much worse experiences that's, I, I'd agree. Working as a learning disability psychiatrist, I'd say the same thing as well. Some of the families that I've seen with learning disabled children, young people, have enormous joy and happiness. And it's interesting. There's a, a whole um, method where you get people to rate their own quality of life. Or you give them various questionnaires and you, you get them to rate their own quality of life. And the fascinating thing is that some people who seem to be completely healthy rate their life quite low, whereas other people who have very obvious medical problems rate, often rate their life as, as really quite high. And this is something that's sometimes known as the disability paradox, that from the outside you would look at someone and you said, blimey, if I was like that, I'd want to kill myself. It's such a terrible way to exist. Mm. But people themselves have a completely different experience of, of that life. So I think we should be very cautious about um, making valuing somebody making... else's life. Yes. And I think actually that it's a bit like every 
Every life, every human life is a bit like a masterpiece, a unique masterpiece. And the question is, it's a bit like saying, is the roof of the Sistine Chapel worth more than a Mozart symphony? You know, which is more valuable? It's apple and orange, isn't it? You, you they, can't. Yeah, you they can't. could be different things. Yeah. And it's the same with the human life. Every human life is unique. Every human life has a unique perspective, unique experiences. Um, it's it's not for another human being to say how valuable mm. one masterpiece is compared with another. But I suppose historically, if we think about people have talked in the past, like Nazi Germany and things that happened there. You, you write about that in your book, don't you? Tell, tell us about that. Yeah, yeah so there's um, one of the interesting things that happened after the end of the terrible Nazi era, they had the Nuremberg war trials. And there was a, a well-known psychiatrist called Dr. Alexander who reviewed what had happened. How was it possible over 20 years sophisticated people, these were not barbarians and savages, these were many eminent people, professors of medicine and uh, uh, judges and uh, academics. How was it possible that they ended up with this horrific program of mass euthanasia where they estimated that millions of people, not just Jewish people, but people with learning disabilities, people with mental health issues, people with cerebral palsy, um, were killed. And he came to the conclusion that the the idea that was the heart of it all was that they thought there was such a thing as a life not worth living. And so they were, as you were saying, they were looking externally and saying this person is handicapped, disabled in this way. So therefore they must be miserable. And it's the, the most humane thing is then to just end their That's life. right. And he said, once they had the concept that there is such a thing as a life not worth living, gradually that concept extended and extended on more and more people they came to the conclusion their lives were not worth living okay so, so that was a long time ago that was 60 years ago surely john you know um doctors and nurses and health professionals the vast majority of them are very caring very compassionate they've got our best interests at heart why shouldn't we just let them decide these things for us because you know wouldn't it, that make it just much more easier well, I think the first thing to say is that these issues are much too important to be left to doctors and nurses and health professionals. I mean, these are issues which affect all of us and we should be involved, all of us in society, be involved in these debates and discussions about how valuable a human life is. I don't think we can, sadly. We can't trust that health professionals will always do the right thing. And maybe history and history shows it. I history think. shows us that, and and in fact, in, the, in in the Nazi era, there were very eminent doctors, professors of medicine, and so on, who we, were behind the um, the whole euthanasia program. And it's when this all came out at the end of the war, it was a huge matter of heart searching for the medical profession because doctors assumed that that all doctors would be the same, that we would all be committed to the same idea of protecting life, and we realised that actually. Um, you can't assume that every doctor is always going to um, behave in a in a totally moral way. Mm. More recently, um, you know, one of the countries in the world where euthanasia is most common, where mercy killing by doctors is common, is, is Holland. And if you read 
most doctors who carry out euthanasia in Holland, it's something they hate and it's something that they don't look forward to and it's something they say they often have flashbacks and uh, in fact studies show there was quite a high incidence of distress and, and mental health issues amongst doctors who committed euthanasia but there's a minority who seem to actually get some kind of strange pleasure or satisfaction from exerting this power over life and death which which is is, is quite alarming really so i think I feel very strongly that doctors should be governed by exactly the same rules as everybody else. I I think I find it very reassuring that in the UK, doctors are governed by exactly the same law as everybody else. Just because we're medically qualified, we don't We're have human. A, we're human as everybody else. We don't have a double O prefix. <laughs> right. You know, we're not licensed to kill. No. And we are held to account. If I was, some of the things that I've often thought about, if I was to deliberately kill one of the tiny little babies in my care, a, for instance, a brain damaged or disabled baby, as far as the law of the land is concerned, I've committed exactly the same crime as if I marched down to 10 Downing Street and wipe out David Cameron. Mm. Now, how on earth can the law value the life of a tiny, pathetic, brain-damaged baby with the value of life of the head of state. And yet that's what our law does, because our law says every human life is special, every human life must be protected, every human life is of equal value. That's very helpfully put, um, John. The other thing I don't think about as well is that when when we look at our newspapers and the media at large, there's a lot of prominence given to euthanasia uh, and people who go to pla- to places in, in Switzerland to end their lives because they feel their lives are so intolerable. And yet you point out in the book, actually, there seems to be something that's somewhat, not just slightly askew, but vastly askew in the amount of prominence that's given. Yeah. So uh, as you say, if you, you know, it's, it's almost commonplace to open a newspaper or to switch on the television news and you see some tragic story of somebody... Heart-wrenching story. Heart-wrenching story of someone who felt their life was completely uh, futile or suffering and who eventually decided to go to Switzerland, to Dignitas and to be killed. And you would get the impression that half the population was on the plane to Switzerland. But in fact, the, the, the statistics, and I read your book, yeah. uh, tell us the statistics because they so are the, quite surprising. Yeah. So the statistics are that approximately 500,000 people a year die in the UK. Uh, half a million. Half yeah. a million. And the number who go... From who all, sorts of, causes, from all yes. sorts of causes, yeah. And the number who go to Switzerland in order to be killed are between 20 and 30. Wow. So it's 20 and 30 compared to half a million. <laughs> and even if you're thinking of people who, who'd want to go and couldn't go, if it's double that it or three be, times yes. that... It's still a tiny... It's still a tiny, tiny fraction. Number. Tiny, mm. tiny. Yes. So... It's a very distorted perspective of what's actually going on in the country. Every day, there are thousands of people who are dying peacefully, many of them in hospices or at home. And not making um, any news headlines And at they're all. not making any news headlines. And how often do you hear a story of somebody who dies well, somebody who dies it peacefully, make the news. somebody who yeah. dies surrounded by their family, somebody who... Uh, that kind of story is not, as you say, it's no news. Whereas... 
there is an organization called Dignity in Dying, which is a, a very effective lobbying organization in the UK, very well funded. They used to be called the Voluntary Euthanasia Society, but they changed their name in order to make it much more acceptable. They call themselves Dignity in Dying. Which sounds very compassionate. Sounds very compassionate. Their sole aim is to have the law changed. And they are feeding these stories. They're constantly on the lookout for a tragic story of somebody who wants to kill themselves. And they then arrange for these stories to be fed to the journalists and the media. And they make good stories. They make they, make, they, they make very heart-wrenching stories. And mm. you feel a lot of sympathy for people who suffer like this. But it gives a very misleading impression. And the other thing is that you hear stories of people in terrible agony, crying out in pain and pleading to be killed and so on. And yet if you talk to the specialists in palliative care who work in special centres who deal with dying people every day of their life, they say they don't recognise these kind of experiences. That's right, because people don't die in terrible pain now, do they? Well, they don't. I'm afraid they do, but they do only because they're receiving very inadequate care. That's the reason why they do. And one of the tragic things in the UK is although we are genuinely the world leaders when it comes to the care of the dying, um, we it is still extremely patchy. Mm. And even in major teaching hospitals, I have seen cases and have been involved in cases where I'm afraid people have been dying with very bad care. Uh, even in so the technology is where the treatments are available, but it's the application of those treatments is, is, is lacking at times. And one of the really strange things, you know, is that there is very little teaching for medical students and junior doctors on helping people to die well. It isn't seen as an important topic. It gets very little emphasis. So people get lots and lots of treat, training about cancer treatments and about genetic screening and about diagnosing dementia and so on but when it comes to helping people to die well this isn't seen as we've got we've we've got some kind of blind spot about that it it is a very bizarre phenomenon so um uh, i i think it's something i feel quite strongly about that, that really we've got the priorities completely wrong within the nhs and that we should put much more emphasis on Uh, on palliative care and on training every doctor, Mm. giving them the skills of how to care for a dying person. So palliative care is totally different from mercy killing. And I think it's important... Yes, just just explain some some definitions. You've got assisted suicide, assisted dying, eugenics and euthanasia. So if you take euthanasia, what it means literally is good death that's all it means but the the definition the way that the word is used is basically intentional medical killing of somebody whose life is thought so although it sounds very caring it's actually quite the opposite it's intentional killing it is to it is to introduce death by the doctor into somebody who is not dying And when the doctors in Holland first started practicing euthanasia, which was really in the 1970s and 1980s, they didn't know how to do it. It wasn't something you got taught at medical school. No. And they, I'm sorry this is slightly grisly, but they 
tried many different ways and different drugs, ways of trying to work out how to kill people, how to kill them cleanly. So they were experimenting, basically. They were experimenting, but they've worked out now a number of drugs which you can inject uh, into a vein or you can take by mouth and which have the effect of killing. And they bring death very rapidly within minutes or even seconds. And the important thing is that those drugs are completely different from the drugs that are used in palliative care. They are, when doctors in palliative care use drugs, they use drugs called opiates, which mm. are very powerful painkillers. And they use drugs, tranquilizers called a group of drugs called the benzodiazepines. The point about those drugs is they're remarkably safe drugs. They're drugs that actually even with large overdosage, will not kill people. I suppose it's confusing. The opiates, people think, of are linked to heroin, aren't they, as well? So. Yes, but even the opiates are not dangerous drugs. There's a, there's a whole myth around that when doctors give opiates, they're really trying to kill people, but they're just covering their tracks. Because it's given to people who are terminally ill, as you yes. said. Yes. Actually, the evidence is that when opiates are used with proper skill, paradoxically, they tend to lengthen life. Because the pain is gone. Because the pain is gone and people suddenly recover a will to live. And as a result, they often live longer when opiates are being used properly. So the, when the euthanasia doctors want to kill, they never use opiates. So the whole thing about euthanasia is it is the intention to kill. It is the mm. intention to introduce death where death doesn't exist. It's not the same as switching off a life support machinery, for instance, or, or withdrawing treatment that is bringing no benefit. Because there the intention is not to kill. There the intention is to stop torturing the patient by giving inappropriate or invasive or unpleasant treatment. So euthanasia is intentional killing. The other th phrase which is often used is assisted dying, and in fact, the bill that went through the UK last year was called the Assisted This Dying, in 2015. In yes. 2015. Now, that language was deliberately chosen again to sound... Compassionate. Compassionate. What, what could possibly be wrong with assisted dying? Of course, everybody who's dying wants assistance. But the word dying in English normally implies a natural process. When you say someone is dying you imply that they're dying from natural processes. That's the difference between dying and killing. Killing yes. is when somebody's being killed. Something, yeah, we know what's happening when they're being something, killed. Yeah, yeah, and that's different from dying. But in assisted dying, it's actually intentional killing again. The only difference from uh, euthanasia is that the doctor still intends that the patient should die. The doctor calculates the lethal dose of medicine the doctor makes sure that the medicine is available. The doctor explains to the patient, you, this is how you take the medicine. You have to take an anti-sickness medicine first to make sure you don't vomit. You have to stay upright. There are, there are precise instructions about how you're doing. But the doctor hands the medicine to the patient and says, this is how you do it, but you must do it yourself. So they're assisting in the sense they're giving them the means they're to They're doing do everything. Can you say that the doctor is morally not involved in this death? I mean, I think it's He's providing obvious. all the means, isn't he? Yeah, he and or she is. Absolutely. Yeah. And 
in the UK law, assisting a suicide like that is a serious criminal offence, which you could well go to prison for a number of years if in assisting a suicide. So right. um, it, it is, again, the intention to end life, but to do it through suicide, assisting a suicide rather than mm -hmm. through direct killing. And whereas in Holland, the majority of medical killing happens through euthanasia, through a doctor actually injecting a drug, in the UK, because people feel we should protect people's right to self-determination, the people who wanted to change the law said, we don't want to go down that euthanasia route, we'll go for assisted suicide. But we don't like the word suicide, it seems unpleasant and violent and so we're going to invent this new phrase assisted dying wow so word the words are really powerful and we have to be very careful not taking them at face value well i think this is a very important thing because it's very interesting as somebody who's interested in medical ethics and who's followed the history of medical ethics one of the things you learn is that the manipulation of language often precedes the change in practice Right. Again, going back to the Nazis in a sense. They, the same thing happened in the Nazi era and it's happened repeatedly in other places and so on. And it, what it reveals is the words we use about our actions are very important. It's like we all of us have a little conversation going in our heads about our actions and the words we use. To the story we tell our ourselves. Actions, the, story the story we tell ourselves. Yes. So... Was, did I kill my patient? No, no, no. I was just assisting. I was easing mm. death. I was assisting dying. I was, yes. I, I was giving them a good death. I didn't kill anybody. So one of the uh, ancient Chinese proverbs says, the beginning of wisdom is to call things by their proper names. Right. Okay. And I think in the, when we talk about these kind of issues, we need to be clear. Are we talking about killing or are we talking about withdrawing treatment? Because mm, they're completely different they're things. Completely different things. They're completely different. Yeah. And withdrawing treatment is good medical practice. And one of the things we all have to learn as doctors is that there is a time to say enough is enough. And it's something that relatives and patients with terminal illness need to. They need to be informed of. They, they need, need to, to need learn to... that there is a time to say enough. I don't want to have more treatment. And yet, I suppose thinking about this as well, that we. All of us, I think, we have a fear of old age. We have a fear of thinking about the suffering, the indignity of not being able to care for oneself, having to be dependent on others. We've got this fear of, of, of what the future holds and what it might hold for us. Um, sure. I mean, and I, th I think, again, that many uh, thinkers and philosophers in the modern age have said the single most important thing about being human is to be able to choose your own way to be able to... Well, so that's a great value in our life, isn't it? It is. Autonomy. It's I, I... autonomy, which literally means autonomos, I make my own rules. I it's my decide. life, I want to it live it. It's my life. life. No one else can tell me what to do. I choose. And when I get to a point when I can't choose anymore, when I can't direct my life, when I can't be in control, then my life is not worth living and I want to kill myself. But John... But we, we all like to think of ourselves as independent. We all like to think that, it, well, you know, okay, I didn't choose my life, but I'm here and I've got a lot of control and I can do so many things. What's, what's wrong with that? Well, of course, there are, uh, there are good things about our independence and about choices and so on. But 
actually it isn't true you know whether i i'm just not some kind of isolated individual whatever i do affects other people and this you see this particularly in terms of suicide so often the suicide is driven by the person who commits suicide is driven by despair and by um depression or by a feeling of futility but actually it can be a very selfish act because what the suicide does is they leave behind profound damage sometimes lifelong damage and so there's no thinking as a word of what's how does my life impact other people what you do affects me what i do affects you and all of us are locked into relationships relationships. i mean I have a father and a mother. I have brothers and sisters. I have extended relatives. I have a wife. I have children. I have close friends. All of them are affected by what I did. And if I was to go out tonight and kill myself, for whatever reason, I would be putting a dagger through the heart of many other people. And and so and that's what, in a sense, is... is maybe it's so easy to forget because I think so much about my life, my rights, my, what can I do? And yeah, that's how we think, don't we? And actually in this way of thinking, what you realize is that this kind of mutual dependence where I depend on you and you depend on me is part of what it means to be human beings. I mean, you know, even as we talk this evening there are all kinds of people on who we depend we depend on people who've purified water so we've been able to drink it we depend on people who are generating electricity so that the lights are on and the recording apparatus is working we're dependent on security services who are preventing people from breaking in and and absolutely killing us and so on and so on all of us are in a web of dependence and this is part of what it means to be human. To be in relationship with others and to be interdependent on, on other people, yes. And so, you know, I hear a lot of people say something like, I just don't want to be a burden to anybody else. Yes. You say something quite provocative as well in, in the book in terms of, you know, many people say that when it comes to my time to die, I just want it to, to just finish. So I'd, I'd like to just go, you know, go, go to bed and be gone or like like a light switching off and I'll be gone yeah and you challenge that yes I mean it's interesting that if you ask people how they would wish to die that is far and away the commonest thing I just want to go out without any warning I want to die in my sleep I don't want any premonition I don't want any awareness I don't want any knowledge I just want to go isn't wouldn't that be a wonderful way to go what's so interesting is if you go back a few hundred years that way of dying was far from being seen as the best possible way to die, was seen as the worst possible way to die. The worst. In fact, people would pray specifically against sudden death. And if you know the old collects of the Church of England, there are, there are prayers where you pray specifically against sudden death because this was seen as the worst possible way to die. So to be catapulted into eternity with no possibility of saying goodbye to your loved ones, no possibility of restoring or making restoration where you've done bad things, asking for forgiveness, no possibility of, of, of saying goodbye and, and preparing your friends and family and children, and no possibility of preparing yourself to meet your maker and uh, just to go out with with that no preparation at all. This was seen as a terrible way to die. 
and with so so with with no closure, as it were. Yeah. And I think it partly reflects the selfishness of our modern age. All we can think about is ourselves, mm-hmm. me and my life. I'm thinking about me and my experience, and I don't want to suffer or have any nasty feelings. And I don't care at all about what the impact of my sudden death might be on my loved ones, on my family and, and all the rest. All I'm thinking about is myself. And and yet, again, the truth is that what I've seen repeatedly is that dying need not be, the process of dying need not be something of total loss. Actually, it can be a strange kind of healing at a time for, of growth. A time Something not to be feared learning. in that sense, yeah. It, it doesn't have to be. I mean, of course, it isn't something that I look forward to. And yet, I have this feeling that it could be even a strange kind of adventure. And I've seen this in others, how this strange process... Well, you had the quote earlier on from Steve Jobs saying that it was the knowledge of dying which changed... Yes his life yes just just to go back to that he says remembering i'll be dead soon is the most important tool i've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life so there's nothing like knowing that you've only got a few weeks or a it's few being realistic left. well or realistic or all you... of a sudden yes it changes things mm. i can remember a friend of mine who was in the middle of a phd he was a young man musician and <clears throat> he was doing a, a phd on some strange musicology and then he got this diagnosis of a terminal illness and um he it became apparent that he was going to die and i remember i sat down with him and i said if i could tell you that you were going to have three months of pain-free existence and then you were going to die what would you do with those three months and i was expecting him to say something like I'd really like to finish my PhD or you know, I'd really like to write this book or whatever it was. He said, you know what? If I knew I was only going to die and th- I had three months left, what I would do is I would stop all my academic studies and I would go through my address book some years ago before yeah, email. Before email, internet, <laughs> yes, a long time ago. And he yes. said, I would write a letter to everybody I've ever known and I would explain what's happening to me and share my experiences. And I was completely... Gobsmacked. Because he's completely out of character. Really. Out of characters. Well, not the guy I... He was, you know, he was quite a shy, introverted, academic type. But actually, that's what happened. And he, he gave up his academic studies. He started writing letters. And he wrote more than 100 letters in those last three months. And then he died quite peacefully. And at his memorial service, more than 400 people turned up. Amazing. Including many people who were there simply got the because they got a letter. Right. And they'd been so moved and struck by what he was sharing so his from death, his experience. in a sense, had given them life in a, in, in, in a strange sort of it's way. It's a very strange, rich kind of yes. thing. And, and I remember sitting in that, that memorial service, surrounded by all these people, and there was a real sort of emotional intensity about that. And we were talking about Stuart and about his life and so on. And I remember thinking I was actually quite envious of Stuart because most people don't have that kind of experience. Most people never write those letters. Most people never have those kind the of opportunity. rich experiences. But it gave him permission to to share at a very deep level. Yes, that, that's, that's a very rich experience. Um, you say... Um, and this is linked to what you just said, really. You say dependence and getting old are not necessarily evil or bad things. 
You touched on that, but do you want to elaborate a bit more? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you see, we come into this world utterly and totally dependent on the love and care of others. You know, as a newborn baby, is the most defenceless um, being. Yeah. And yet, what's more defenceless? There is nothing. And, yeah. and yet, all of us were once a newborn baby. Then you go through this phase of your life when other people depend on us, and I and my wife, we've got three grown-up boys, and that phase seems to go on an awful long time. <laughs> but then. You know, most of us are going to end our lives utterly and totally dependent on the love and care of others. And I've come to realise that that isn't a terrible, evil, horrible, outrageous thing. Actually, it's part of the narrative. It's part of the story. It's part of the lives we've been given. You beautifully explain that with, with your mother. If you could share that with us. Yeah, so my mother, who was a lovely, vivacious um, lady, uh, was struck down with a horrible kind of dementia and... In front of our eyes, as the family, we could see her deteriorating just over the space of months. And eventually she ended up totally dependent on on love and care from others. She was having 24-hour nursing care. She couldn't do anything for herself. She was confused. Completely dependent. She was hallucinating. She um, was sort of locked into a body that didn't respond. And it was it was tragic to see her. And I was visiting her... Um, near the end and somebody thrust a yoghurt pot and a teaspoon into my hand and I was trying to feed her and I was saying, open your mouth, open your mouth, here it comes, open your mouth, open your mouth. And then I suddenly had this flashback that this was precisely what she used to do for me when she fed me. And I could even remember her words as she was feeding me. But what I remember so vividly is that at the time I remember thinking, you know, this is the way it was meant to be. I was learning more of what it meant to be a son and she was learning more of what it meant to be a mother because dependence is part of the story. It's part of the story. Wow, that's really powerful. You and I obviously are disciples of Christ and the Christian gospel is very important to us and as it is to many, many people. Um, if we think about how how does the Bible talk to us about suicide suffering reaching points of despair well it's a it's a very interesting and rich issue what one of the interesting things is that in many other cultures in fact in most other cultures non-christian cultures out of which christianity arose suicide was was held up as a noble way to die so for instance if you take the ancient roman culture um, suicide was often seen as a very noble and honourable way, the death of a soldier, the death of a, of a nobleman. Uh, it's true of many cultures across the world. And yet, in Christian culture, right from the very beginning, suicide was never seen as a noble or honourable way to die. It was always seen as an act of despair, as an act of hopelessness. And in fact, in the Bible, there are several people who do commit suicide and, and it's never seen as, a, as an honourable or a godly or a noble way to die. Um, Judas Iscariot is one of the most well-known yes. persons who just, who, out of total despair, kills himself, hangs himself. So suicide is never held up as a noble way to die. And yet suicidal thoughts are quite common in God's people. And so... In the Bible, for instance, uh, Elijah says, it's enough, God, take my life. And yet God 
sends him, doesn't take his life and sends him on a sabbatical instead. And he has to discover that God has more plans for his life. And Job curses the day he was dawn, born and Jeremiah also. And so suicidal thoughts are, are quite common in God's people, but suicide itself is never seen as a noble or honourable way to die. It's always seen as an act of despair. So the Bible talks that there is always hope, no matter how dark it seems, there's always hope. There's always hope. There's always that life is ultimately something that's precious and is not to be thrown away. But then it goes on, what the Christian faith teaches is something even more wonderful and bizarre, and that is that the God of the universe himself, the God of total power and authority chooses to turn himself into a totally pathetic and completely dependent baby. It's bizarre. So, it's, it's, so yeah. he needs to be fed and he needs to be washed and he needs to have his bottom wiped. Yeah. And we take for granted because we, obviously we celebrate Christmas every year and yet that's what the Christmas... We're so familiar with the Christmas story that we've actually forgotten how utterly scandalous and bizarre mm. and wonderful it is that that the God of total power and um, authority makes himself, chooses to make himself utterly and totally dependent. And on the cross, again, the God of total authority in the person of Jesus is stretched out on the cross and through parched lips he croaks, I am thirsty. And he can do nothing for himself. So... God enters into the experience of dependence. The one who is, who is, if you like, completely independent and exactly. doesn't need anybody or anything. And he teaches us that through this experience of dependence, we learn more of what it means to be fully human. And because the Christian faith teaches us that even at that moment of total dependence, he is still the second person of the Trinity, he is still upholding the universe by the word of his power. So his divine status and dignity is in no way touched by his dependence. And exactly the same is true for human beings as well. Even if we, like my mother, even if she is brought to that terrible state, painful state of total and utter dependence, her unique value and dignity and status as a human being made in God's image, as a loved and beloved um, person, is not in any way lost. And And I suppose, in a sense, Christ's death is then vindicated that by the resurrection. That's right. So the final enemy, which is death, uh, is defeated so that the message of Easter is a message of extraordinary hope. The, the, the fact that death itself dies, death is defeated. Death is, death is, yeah, death is dead, yeah. Death. And, and life and resurrection life triumphs. And one of the fascinating things that in the New Testament, the deaths of many Christians are described, and yet interestingly, they are described as not dying, they are described as falling asleep. That's fascinating, isn't it? Yes. So... The, and the that the choice of those words is clearly very important. So, the sting, the terrible pain, the loss, which is very real, which is very real, very real. Yeah. But nonetheless, it is drawn. The ultimate sting is drawn so that the the Christian believer need not 
go into death with this utter sense of defeat and desolation and loss. Yes, and I think that's what we've lost in our Western secular culture because we're so me-centred, we're so much focused on the here and now that we've lost, if you like, the bigger story. That yes, life is full of suffering and pain and terrible tragedy, but it doesn't end there. It doesn't end with death. Death does not have the final say. That's right. Um, so one of the um, church fathers wrote beautifully that he said that all our sunsets are also sunrises. Oh, beautiful. So that the very experience, so that death is transformed from this ultimate horror of mm. destruction and annihilation is actually transformed into a gateway. It's transformed into even a strange kind of healing. So, John, we have a number of different people listening to us from all over the world. And some of them are, in a sense, going through maybe some terrible suffering or loved ones who they know go through some terrible suffering. In the light of what you said, how can we die well... Well, and of course, that's not an easy... It's not easy, and, and, and an I, easy I, I don't want to soundbite either, because obviously that's a yeah, huge question in, it in, its own, in its own right. But I think one of the things that seems pretty obvious, and that is, in order to die well, we need to start preparing to die. It isn't something that you can just do with absolutely no preparation. And the best way in learning to die well is start learning to live well. Absolutely. Um, there was a wonderful lady called Cicely Saunders who was a pioneer of palliative care in the UK and she emphasised that she, one of her slogans was you matter because you are you and you matter to the end of your life and not only will we help you to die well we will help you to live before you die just say that again you, just say, you, matter. you matter because you are you and you matter to the end of your life and not only will we help you to die well, we will help you to live before you die. And that phrase, to live before you die, mm. became one of the slogans of palliative care. It's all about intensity of living. It's about making the most of those last hours, days, weeks, months, and focusing on the things that really matter. And, and that means it's focusing on relationships. Who are the people who matter most to me? And have I told them that they matter? And how can I help to strengthen that relationships? Are there people I need to forgive who have hurt me? Are there people I need to forgive? Um, are, are there people I need to ask forgiveness for where I've done wrong and I need to be reconciled? Are there dreams I have which I want to fulfill? Uh, are there things I need to share with my loved ones about what matters most to me? And uh, It's interesting that there used to be in, in the past a whole tradition of the last words of, of, and of those last words were treasured and, and rehearsed and never forgotten. Right. And, uh, and I think, you know, if I knew I was dying, I would want there would be I would want to think carefully. What do I want to say to my children? What what do I want to pass on to them? What's the most important thing I want to share with them? Because that would matter for me, and I know it would matter for them. They would and they would carry that. They for would years carry and that and maybe for the rest of their, for the rest of their, their lives. Their so, lives yes. so 
we need to talk about this. We need to share together. What does it mean to die well? We need to celebrate the examples. When we know somebody who did die well, who died at peace and surrounded by love and making the most of those last days, that's something we want to learn about and celebrate. And together we can understand that this is something we do together. It's not, you're never alone. And we really want to emphasise that so people are listening. That's so important, such such an important truth. Yes. And there's a wonderful quote that says, love is a way of saying to another, it's good that you're alive. It's good that you're in the world. The trouble with euthanasia and with suicide is it's like saying it's bad that you're alive. Yes. It'd be much better for the world if you were not here. And that's tragic. And that's, that's tragic if we allow ourselves to yeah. believe that. And if I can say that it's to myself, it's bad that I'm alive. And it's a lie. It isn't true. The truth is it's good that you're alive and it's good that you're in the world. And we need to find ways of saying this to one another and to meaning it. We need to learn more of what it means to live lives of mutual dependence, of being a burden to one another. These things are not easy, but I think it's a better way. It's a way forward, and it's a way, ultimately, that matches with our humanity. Well, thank you so much, John, for uh, sharing these thoughts with us. Again, the book is Right to Die, Euthanasia, Assisted Suicide and End of Life Care. But it's much more than that, and I hope you've sort of picked that up from from our conversation, that uh, wherever you are, whoever you are, whatever you're going through, you're here for a purpose and it's important that you're here and that there is a purpose to your life. Um, you can get the book uh, from, we'll, ha- we'll have a, a link on, on the website to it. And uh, thank you again for listening. If you've enjoyed today's conversation, you can get all the show notes for this episode from drsunil.com. And could you do us a favour? Head over to iTunes to rate the programme. This is by far the best way to get this content into the hands of those who need it most. Also, do you think about who you could pass details of the podcast on to? Don't forget to check out the blog for more great content. That's drsunil.com, helping you to make sense of life in a challenging and complex world. Until next time, goodbye for now.